Keely and I, one of our dreams for like our podcast is to have these like really awesome sponsors one day that are just like our favorite products or favorite herbalists or, you know, all the stuff. And um, a strong association I have with Isabella is her morning matchas. And I just want to take a minute to say this episode is low-key sponsored by um, Peak Tea Matcha. Is that what it's called? (laughs) Yes. Okay. The best of the best. And you know, just like I've stayed with Isabella um, long-term, twice now, one shorter term, one longer term, but the morning matcha ritual with um all the different all the different ingredients you can go into them if you would like to but it really is a um it's something I aspire to be able to do for myself one day (laughs) um and maybe with the help of peak tea we're we're on our way here so yeah peak tea you could be making many more dreams come true by sponsoring yes so shout out welcome to the fifth element a podcast for people seeking intimate connection with their innermost self through holistic healing, cosmic consciousness, and radical rebirth. We hope each episode is an opportunity for listeners to join the collective journey towards intuition and integration. Um, so we have the morning matcha queen today here, Isabella Melvin, and we're very excited to get into some maybe never publicly shared before stories. Okay, okay. Um, And Isabella is a woman of many, many talents. And um, if you want to just introduce yourself, Isabella, with um, a little bit about your background, and then we'll get into some of your health journey today. Yay, I'm so happy to be here. It's so much fun. I'm already having a great time, so. Thanks for asking me to tell my story. And yeah, I, I think I will be sharing parts of my journey that I haven't sh- shared elsewhere. So this is exciting. Um, so I am an art school grad who babysat a lot in her early 20s. And from there, I really discovered my love for working with mothers and babies And from there, I was starting to get interested in feminism and went into, you know, reading about what was going on with birth in the U.S. primarily, the injustices that are happening to birthing women in in the U.S. And then I, I really just took a risk and did a doula training. I felt a calling, did a doula training. Um, and since then I've, you know, left kind of mainstream birth world and attend births outside the system and now host a podcast where I expose the harms of trans ideology, porn, prostitution, and all of um, the things that we've been told are good for us as women. Um, I haven't really gotten into publicly talking about hormonal birth control and things like that, but um, my purpose is to kind of, you know, piece everything together and, and see where the through lines are and, and all of these forces that are really attempting to control our minds and our bodies and therefore our, our lives. Um, and in true projector fashion, something in your human design that we were looking at that was like, you expose the things that people can't see yet or something like that. You have a hypnosis background 
Um, that is definitely something that we haven't um, explored much on the show. So do you want to get into your um, background with that and just how that came into your life um, and what you do with that now? Totally. So um, before, before I became a doula, I had many years of binge eating. You know, I, I come from a, a family, you know, my mother was a binge eater and bulimic and anorexic. Her sisters were, her mothers were, my cousins, you know, to, to a lesser degree. But the relationship with food on my mother's side was, you know, really complicated, uh, you know, not dissimilar from, from a lot of uh, our families and our upbringing. And then my dad's side, there was a kind of overconsumption flair um, and always a kind of a, a commentary on how small I was compared to all of them. So on either side, it was like, you're too big or on the other side, you're too small. Um, and so I had sought, you know, help and, and counseling for that in college, I guess is the first time I, I really knew it was a problem. Um, and also at the time I was a vegetarian and suffering from, you know, just chronic stomach aches, chronic um, constipation, followed by, you know, erratic bowel movements, just really icky, unpredictable gut stuff. Um, and so I believe it was 2015 that I just got to a point of such desperation. And I just thought maybe hypnosis could help me. Like, I, I don't remember anyone saying it to me. I think, you know, there was so much shame involved with the binge eating that I, I vaguely remember just doing a preliminary internet research, you know, just desperately trying to find out how to fix this thing because I had done cognitive behavioral therapy. I had seen counselors. Um, I remember actually even calling once or twice. I forgot about this, uh, like Overeaters Anonymous, like hotline. Wow. And it was like so depressing. Oh like my God. I was just like, and, and that maybe we'll get into later, but it was just such an anchor for trauma. Like, you know, and like AA and those, those, um, those means of support have such low success rates. And so I, I feel like I really got a taste of that when I kind of dipped my toes in Overeaters Anonymous. So, and also a lot of those, a lot of those people were um, at least on like forums. And when I'd call the hotlines, like they were, a lot of them were obese. And, and I, and I wasn't obese. I, I actually, from the outside in it, it didn't look like there was really anything going on or anything wrong with me necessarily that I, that I was even suffering. Mm. Um, so yeah, in a, in a, a moment of, of just pure desperation, I found a hypnotist that was local to me and, um, I booked a session with her and it was the day it was the morning of a catering job. So I was doing a catering job that night. I had seemed to create a life for myself where I was constantly kind of socially allowed to binge eat. So lots of babysitting at that time, lots of catering jobs. Um, I was going to like, a, a, you know, one or two potlucks a week, just like friends gatherings, you know, so I was constantly surrounding myself with just a abundance of food that, that I really didn't need. And that was making me feel sick. So I went to see this hypnotist the morning before this catering gig. And I was so nervous about the catering gig because I knew what happens when I do catering gigs. I, I binge eat and I get to take leftovers and I get to snack and taste everything. And um, so the session was so powerful. 
Um, and, and this is typical of hypnosis, you know, where you, you can't remember much of what the person said and, and there's a kind of time distortion, but I do remember one line that really stood out for, stood out to me that, that, that I carry with me always, which was, um, offense is, um, a prison and also for your protection. And she, the metaphor, she, she kind of, the, the picture she painted as she was saying that line was, you know, horses jumping over a fence. And that really stuck with me. Um, and so what helped me, you know, moving forward with that, with that line was, you know, starting to create uh, boundaries for myself with food. And that's not ultimately how I live now anymore, but at the time, having some boundaries with food was really, really helpful. Having that framework, I found a lot of freedom in having that framework. Now, the extreme end of that would be, you know, um, having like 10 foods that you can eat and only eating those and being super restrictive. But at the time, yeah, I, I, I really, that, that one line really has um, stayed with me and it can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. But um, that one session, okay, well, first of all, I'll tell you what happened after the session. So she had said I was going to be a little hazy and I, it was only about a five block walk from um, where I, at my mom's place where I was living at the time. And I remember, you know, my mom was in a doorman building and I remember walking by my doorman, just like praying that he wasn't going to like speak to me because I really felt like high. I was like on a different planet. I felt so out of it. I remember walking upstairs and my mom was cooking a lot of food and all the food that she was had had cooked just had this like bubble around it. Wow. Like it was food and I knew I could eat it and it didn't disgust me, but it also didn't elicit incessant like thoughts of like, should I eat that? Am I going to eat it when she's gone? Like, should I save it for later? Like, do I want, do I, am I going to ask her to hide it? Like, like I just had, I had just kind of no react, just kind of neutral response to what she was doing. But I remember feeling like there was this like bubble around what she had made. And then um, that, that relationship to food carried on that night when I went to the, when I did the catering gig. And I, so I thought, wow, this is something has shifted for sure. And so I didn't binge eat for like a full year after that one, one hour session. And so that was a huge feat for someone who was just binging multiple times a week, if not every day. Um, And ultimately that one session didn't like do it for good. I ended up, you know, going back to therapy and doing a combination of different kind of integrative um, coaching um, and, and, ther- and therapeutic using ther- other therapeutic models. But yeah, that, that one hypnosis session was like, damn, this is powerful. This is a really powerful modality that I'm so glad I know about because then I went to teach, uh, I went on to teach hypnobirthing, which is hypnosis for birth. So I saw the impact there as well. Um, I don't teach that model anymore, but, but yeah, just similar, similar, um, kind of formulas and, and ways of, um, you know, imprinting positive messages and suggestions in, in the mind. Um, you talked about how this was like, like these behaviors and these patterns were so ingrained in your family. Like, you know, you mentioned pretty much all of your significant family members. Um, 
So at what point were you like, this is an issue for me? Like, because I feel like sometimes when it's, when these patterns are so ingrained in your family, you think that it's the norm until one day you get out of it and you're like, oh, no one else lives like this. But it seems like, you know, was your experience that you had a thread of like, oh, this isn't normal. This is weird. These comments are, you know, feeling invasive or whatever, or was there just like kind of a moment maybe when you stepped out of that family dynamic, like what did that look like for you? Well, I, I, you know, I, I think it was probably that my clothes didn't fit like something that's just so hard to ignore. Like the weight gain was part of it. Um, the, always needing to be near a bathroom basically you know because I never knew how my stomach was going to respond at any given time to anything that I consumed and so this paralyzed me I mean I yeah I mean I never had a nine-to-five job and the jobs that I the kind of the internships that I did have um, were a real struggle because of my kind of my, my gastrointestinal issues. So I would say it was like the weight gain, my gastrointestinal issues getting worse. And I was also binge eating when I had my first serious relationship and like hiding that from him and feeling shame around that and seeing how like it, it impacted our, our relationship um, too. I, I would say those were the, the moments where I was like, this is, this is bad, but yeah, not being able to like fit into my clothes and like not recognizing myself and photographs like that, that, that really um, probably did it for me as that. And that might sound like superficial too, but, but it was, it was like, I can't ignore this anymore because it, it, it happened incrementally as well. It wasn't like all of a sudden I like gained 20 pounds. It was each pound like held like days and days of binging. Like it was just, my body was like, couldn't handle the weight that I was gaining, even though, you know, 20 pounds might sound like a small amount, you know, to people and my, my body was just like screaming, like to stop, you know, like it was just, it just looked, I was like a constant state of inflammation. So yeah, I would say like how I was feeling, how my body looked, how my clothes didn't fit. And then in tandem, you know, my gastrointestinal issues just getting worse and worse and worse because I was binge eating and because I wasn't being nourished and getting, you know, the right nutrients and minerals that, that I needed. What about eating was mm -hmm. self-soothing? Um, it was a, a, a space that I could be really childlike. It was a space where I had no limits, no boundaries. I could do whatever I wanted. It was like a kid in the candy shop, especially when I was like babysitting and going to other people's homes and having free range of their cabinets and all of the snacks and all the things that I wasn't allowed to have. I think rightfully so as a child, like lots of like poison products and like, you know, toxic chemicals and uh, stuff that shouldn't even really be called food, um, like Cheez-Its and like fruit roll-ups and chips ahoy and like all all the kind of junk food that um, my mom never had in 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 my home growing up um so yeah it was the space to be childlike I think it was a it was a time where I I could like black out too which was fun like there was a thrill and just kind of like losing myself and like losing track of time and I didn't have that relationship to alcohol like I think I definitely overdrank in in college but um 
I don't think I ever blacked out. Um, so yeah, there was like a thrill in it being kind of secretive. Um, you, I'd get like an adrenaline like hit and then the crash and then like the sensation of being super, super full. And then um, like almost sometimes instantaneously just having a total like release, like diarrhea, you know, like I, I wasn't bulimic. I tried to be but I literally couldn't do it. Like my, the mechanics of the finger down the throat thing just never, I could never do it, which I think was a blessing. So my relationship was like in and then out. Um, and that was like already the pathway for all my gastrointestinal issues, like just literally shitting all the time. <laughs> but yeah, it was like this, this um, these opposites of getting really, really full and then having the release and then kind of starting from scratch or that kind of like empty tank feeling that was really addictive. Um, and I would get to that by also, you know, uh, abusing um, like laxatives mm. as well. Looking back, do you, do you see like the, um, like your relationships with the women in your family or listening to how they talked about their bodies or their relationships with food or whatever? Like, do you see that as um, impacting like how your upbringing or childhood was or your relationship with food or do you feel like in your reflections it was more of like an individual thing I think my mom really did the best that she could with me you know she had resolved her eating issues in terms of like the severity of what she experienced in her, in her twenties, her teens and twenties, but, um, just the awareness of portions and what I was eating, like, yeah, there were always like comments about her own eating, not about mine, but if you're constantly talking about your food, you know, the person that you're with is, you know, in relation to you. And there was always a kind of like, um, even though she didn't say anything bad to me ever, not once, like you're fat, you need to lose weight. Like some of the women I work with mothers, like just will tell them like, you're fucking disgusting, you know, like really cruel shit. Like I didn't have that, but I think her kind of her inner process, I could see her inner process of, of, of choosing what she was eating and how much she was eating. And, and I think that that's what I kind of took with me. Um, and I also grew up with the story that like, I don't have a fast metabolism so that I needed to be careful. That was a big story that I grew up with. Um, Cause like I, I would go, I remember going to my cousin's house and she was just so, so skinny and had this massive pantry. And I grew up in New York city. So like, we didn't have a pantry. It was like, nobody has a pantry. Um, and so I'd go to like Texas and, and just this walk-in closet, like pantry of all my favorite junk food. And I just remember having so much envy for her because she had a fast metabolism and could eat anything that she wanted. And so I'd go to her house and I would just like, you know, binge on all her junk food. Um, so yeah, I grew up with that story that like, I had to be careful. And my mom was always, uh, you know, wanted me to be in any kind of like some kind of physical activity too, which made me feel like I was always on the brink of like being obese. Like, her, like when I quit ballet, she was so worried that I was just gonna like blow up into a balloon like 
I, I, I don't know. So, I mean, physical activity for kids is obviously important and, and good, but yeah, I, I always kind of grew up with like, if I'm not careful, like I could get fat. What do you see, um, like as being the most harmful, like messaging that people are getting from people like outside of their families, like say in the media or anything these days? I guess the, the like goal setting, I think like the, the image of a woman's body you think you want and that being shown to you over and over and over and over on Instagram, you may not even know that you want it. Like you may have never even seen a body like that, but because you've now seen this one body type a hundred times a week for the past three months, you start to look at yourself in the mirror differently or perhaps move differently or perhaps eat differently. And so I think all the subconscious programming around like body type. Um, and so if you think of like kind of the influencer body type, it's a tiny, tiny waist, big butt, um, you know, kind of like toned arms, toned back. Um, so I would say all of the kind of before and after photos that we see on the internet, um, suggesting that there needs to be an after, like suggesting that there needs to be any improvement at all. Why? Why? I mean, I understand goal setting for like health reasons and, and you know, um, feeling better, but just this idea that at any moment in time, like there's something that needs to be improved on the body. I think that's something that I've just start to let go of in the, in the past few years. Um, and so that kind of more simply said, could it just be that, you know, that there's something wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, and I feel like this is also more common than people might um, think, like, because we also maybe have this one image of what an eating disorder looks like or what disordered eating um, looks like. And it really, as we kind of zoom out and we see like the issues that women have with their bodies and with body image and with food like it really does affect obviously many many um women and um for you I I'm kind of hearing throughout your story like this theme of um like not knowing what your body was going to do like feeling like out of control with your body like this idea of like blacking out like disassociating from your body like having this like adrenaline rush like kind of like a toxic crazy abusive like relationship and how do you think did that affect your relationship to like your intuition like were you connected to your like I mean now you're just such a like clear aligned intuitive woman and you know I feel like everyone experiences some bouts of like dissociation and trauma of course but did you notice throughout those years like were you just kind of disconnected altogether from like your inner voice I don't think so 
No, I mean, because I was always conscious of the fact that there was something wrong, that like this, that, that this wasn't okay. I, I don't think I ever normalized it. I just didn't know how to get out of it. And so I felt like I was living a double life. Like I was like the paleo knows all about nutrition by day and then binge eating Cheez-Its by night. Like I was living a double life. Like I remember some of the women that I used to work for just like, um, just, you know, complimenting me about like, wow, you have so much self-control and like, wow, you eat so well. Cause I'd bring these perfectly prepared little paleo meals. And then after they'd leave, I'd go buy and, you know, I'd go out with the kids and buy junk and eat leftover pizza or, you know, just rummage through their cabinets till I had diarrhea. So I felt like I was living a double life. Um, I, I feel like, no, I feel like I've always gotten the reflection from people and friends that, that um, I was intuitive and observant and caring and, you know, a good listener and all, all those things, I think, um, it was more so just an inability to like feel my anger and feel my fear and like come to terms with like what it was to be an adult as well. Like I was in denial that all of a sudden I was like out of college and out of this framework and out of, you know, like just this cushy, not non-reality life that I was living you know as like an art an art student um apathetic detached you know in in a kind of an intellectual sense mm -hmm. um so no I, I would say I was like a part-time dissociator <laughs> <laughs> love that um so back to the hypnosis like for you after that year what, you know, you said you didn't binge eat for a year. So I'm guessing there was a time when you started again, was there a specific event or kind of bring us to that time where you started? Um, I don't think there was a specific event. I, I, I guess it was a kind of tapering. I can't think of a, maybe there was, but I, I can't recall it consciously now. Um, I think, I think just never dealing with the root causes of the binge eating and like the, the issue, the emotional issues that I hadn't faced, um, that just started to resurface, you know? So like those issues never went away. So it was just a kind of a, a bandaid. Um, it's like birth control. Yeah, exactly. Like birth control. And I think like, maybe getting into a new profession, like leaving my, oh, I remember, I, I mean, I remember it being really bad. I mean, I just created a life for myself that was just so lonely, you know, like I remember renting, I was spending so much time alone or with children, like by, you know, by day or sometimes at, no, sorry, at night I would, you know, be taking care of kids and babysitting. And during the day, I rented a studio in Williamsburg and in Brooklyn, and I was making art alone in a windowless room. Um, just, I mean, I now that I think about it, I'm like, of course I was like depressed and binge eating. What kind of art were you making at that time? Um, that year I got really obsessed with Rachel Dolezal, the woman who, um, you know, would stage her own hate crimes against herself. She was a professor in Spokane, Washington. 
um, and pretended to be black and then, you know, was like all over the news and just- Were you obsessed in like a, like on her side way or, or- I, I definitely, I was like fascinated by her like psychological, psychological issues. I wouldn't, I, I would say I, I had empathy for her in like the sense that like the derangement it would take. And, and like, also she came from a history of abuse. So yeah, I would say, I wouldn't say it's on her side, like not to justify like pretending to be black. Um, but she had a really fucked up childhood, um, and so, yeah, I just got kind of fascinated with like what it would take for someone to do this. Um, and so I was making like collages and like video stuff. I actually went, flew out to Spokane and like tried to meet her oh um, and we were emailing and then she, I think she chickened out because I was, I wasn't really sincere. Like I was like, I was an art student or like an art grad trying to like make an ironic kind of like peace like it wasn't a sincere attempt to understand her it was for my personal gain um like ethically like of course she I mean good for her that she didn't meet with me um it was like exploitative what I was doing um but that's like all pretty much like what all my peers were doing in art school is like making super exploitative um unethical like work um so yeah I got got, I've always been obsessed with like the identity thing and um which makes sense based on the work that I'm doing now. But yeah, so I was making work about Rachel Dolezal. In your windowless room. And you were like, oh God, my life is <laughs> lonely. Yeah, that, that, I feel like that speaks to, you know, some of the overarching, um, or I should say like underlying feelings behind, um, underneath this binge eating, which maybe you can speak more about some of what you discovered those were for yourself, but loneliness, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially for women, especially for mothers is a huge one in our society. Um, yeah, that's really sad. I mean, I don't think women should ever be alone with kids like for that long, like, yeah, yes, be with kids, but like also around other adults, like it is, it'll drive you, it will drive you to insanity, you know, and like, I remember part of the time that I would babysit, I would be with the mothers, they needed me so badly, and I was like, such a sought after babysitter, because mm-hmm. I was also like, personable, and like, we, be, you know, I'd become friends with these mothers, and they would just keep me around to like, have company at some point, too, um, but yeah, the loneliness, and then, you know, going from having, you know, if you, if you were, if you're not homeschooled, like if you've gone through the school system and then gone to university, like your community is just built in. All you have to do is wake up and go to class, like, and see your friends. And if you're making, if you're at an art school, all your studios are in the same place and you have, you know, everything is scheduled. And so kind of coming out of that and being like, whoa, like, none of this is real. Like I have to make this now for myself if I want it, which would make sense why so many people are, you know, gravitate, you know, towards like startup culture. Cause it's like, it's like fun. It's like, you're, they, they sell it that way. They like ping pong tables. I remember being so jealous of my friends, like corporate jobs because they had like Friday night happy hours. Like I remember like asking to be invited to their mm-hmm. like happy hours because I, I felt like I had no community after school. And um, yeah. So like working for yourself, freelancing, it's straight out of college is, I think, 
I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for that, for what yeah. that I was, what would that was going to look like day to day. Well, speaking of, to like those feelings of loneliness and those underlying like emotional triggers, it, it seems like to me, a lot of the um, kind of like voices that I see addressing um, like disordered eating are talking about like specifically just like the re- your relationship with food, your relationship with food and not talking about, yeah, these underlying things or like what are these emotional triggers? What are these traumas from years past that may be manifesting in this capacity as a coping mechanism? Um, and I imagine since in the work that you do with women, especially using hypnosis, that it's less about you and the food specifically and more about like, how do we address the root cause, the the thing at um, at the base of this, so that it doesn't continue to happen or manifest in other ways in your life. Um, if you want to speak a little bit about just kind of like specifically, what does your coaching or one on one work look like? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a great point. And like for for it really isn't about the food, you know. Like for one person, it's food. For the other person, it's alcohol. For the next person, it's nail biting. For the next person, it's you know pulling their hair out, whatever it is. It's, it's so not about, um, the, the thing. Um, I mean, my perfect storm was food. It just makes sense. That would be food for me. I grew up, you know, in like New York city, my mom was in fashion. Like I was obsessed with like teen Vogue and uh, Mary Kate and Ashley. And like, it just would make sense that for me, it would be food. Um, it wouldn't have made sense for me to be an alcoholic, like nothing about my upbringing and my, my relate and, you know, the way that my parents consume alcohol would, would, would lead me to be an alcoholic. It just, it just wouldn't make sense. Um, and so, yeah, for how it kind of comes out is, is irrelevant. And for like the coaching purposes, well, one, the one thing I'll say is, yeah, with the whole relationship to food thing, like that's all conscious mind stuff, like deciding what to get on the grocery list, like diet protocols, um, checklists, like all those, like that's all willpower stuff and like analyzing and, and, and kind of judging and planning. That's all conscious mind stuff that doesn't, I'm not saying it doesn't have a role, I think in healing and recovery, but it's a, it's a very small part um, in all of it. But that was the focus with like the cognitive behavioral therapy that I did for so many years and working with a counselor. It's like getting all the bad food out of the house. And like, when you go to a potluck, bringing your dish and only eating your dish. And like, I did all of those, those things, packing a lunch when I'm going to babysit and, you know, all, all, all the stuff, um, eating, eating a healthy meal at home before you go to the potluck or the big, you know, holiday party. Um, none of that worked. It's so sad. It's such a sad image, first of all, but it's also this reinforcing of there is something wrong with you. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you are going to need to control that. Like you're out of control. And like, mm-hmm. this is a thing that, that like, it's just your problem. And these are the ways to fix it rather than um, like, wow, look at this pain that you're in. Like, look at this way that your body is trying to regulate like, look at how you are trying to control the chaos because you're overwhelmed. Like, it's, yeah, all this reinforcing it. And like, now we're seeing so much of this in the health and wellness industry of like all this fixing that you need to do and detoxing and this and that. Mm-hmm. And the underlying subliminal subconscious message is like, you need to fix yourself. There's something wrong with you. Yeah. Well, it's saying that like, you are the problem, but all the solutions are external and 
out of your control unless you buy into them. True. Yeah. And it's like a creates a dependence. Like what if I don't have access to like, yeah, what I think I need to eat on the menu, like then what, then I'm like, then I'm really screwed. Or like, what if, you know, I'm, I'm thinking my friends and I are going out for Thai food and all of a sudden last minute they change it to Italian Mm -hmm. and then there's going to be pasta and bread and like, Oh, you know, like (laughs) scary. Um, so, so yeah. So, you know, the, the idea with hypnosis or like the, the kind of using the conscious leadership tools or neuro linguistic programming tools, um, is to, yeah, essentially get to the root of what's going on. So, you know, what I found with the work that I, I've done with women for binge eating is that the one session, it can work, you know, um, if the woman is coming to me already having done a lot of kind of deprogramming already, but because food is something that we have to kind of deal with every day, we, it's not something we can just like quit like cigarettes. Um, I've found like a kind of sweet spot where 10 sessions with women um, eight of those being kind of integrative coaching sessions where we start to get to know her, their like, you know, persona, binge eating personas. Um, and so those first eight sessions are really just like, how did you grow up? What are the stories you have about food? Did you have enough food? Did you have too much food? What did your mom say about you? Like just getting just the, all the storytelling, then pulling out the personas and the associations with food, um, and also talking about like why we love to binge so much, right? Like talking about what we're going to really miss about binge eating and the comforts that it brought to us and what it means when we stop, like what is on the other side? And I think for me, what was the on, on the other side of stop, stopping to binge eat was stopping binge eating was like responsibility and like purpose and visibility. And that was so scary that was so scary. And I remember one, one time my mom said to me, I kept taking babysitting job after babysitting job after babysitting job and just going nowhere. It was just like dead end, dead end, dead end, more binge eating, more binging, more binge eating. Like it, it had, it had gotten past the point of like, Ooh, this is good money. I'm going to make some good money while I figure out my next move. Like it wasn't, it, it was beyond that point. And my mom just said, why are you still hiding? Like, why are you hiding? Um, so yeah, talking about, you know, the, the, the positive intention of the habit, whether that's smoking cigarettes or binge eating, like why we're doing it and what we're getting. So for me, like one, you know, like I mentioned earlier was having a childlike experience. So what other experiences could I create in my life where I could feel childlike, that I could feel free, where I could feel free and, um, uh, maybe a a bit risky, maybe a bit thrilling, but like not to the point of hurting myself. Like, you know, after being such like a good girl for so long. Um, so, so yeah, thinking about where, where I can enact that desire in, in, in other parts of my life. And, um, and then, you know, the, the, the kind of the planning and that stuff, it, it just kind of comes after and it comes with time. I mean, I, I remember working with a woman who just was telling me about how much she disliked the kind of food that she was eating. And I just said, did you ever think about buying different food? 
you know, she would kind of, she would kind of um, uh, tell me all her favorite dishes that she used to have when she lived in a different city that were made for her. Um, then she was living in a remote area. And I just said, you know, like, what if you bought the ingredients of the dishes that you would get pre-made for you and you did that for yourself at home? And it was like, it was like, it's so simple, but like, again, we are just locked into this pattern of like, It's making me think of, it's making me think of like self-punishment, like women and this idea of, oh, like treat yourself and you deserve this and, you know, all those little tiny phrases, but also, you know, when you were talking, it really, um, talking about like food's the one thing, you know, that obviously we need and that idea of nourishment and this idea of, um, like the vegan and the vegetarian diet and the malnutrition and the way that women are like committed subconsciously to not nourishing themselves and that idea of visibility Mm -hmm. and that idea of like staying small or height like or in some people's cases some women's cases hiding staying Mm -hmm. big you know just Mm -hmm. like whatever it is um this idea of like limiting how much they can feel how much they can take on And it just gets, I remember this quote or this stat or whatever that I don't know, I don't know, I'll check it, but it was like, what's the number one cause of death in women? And I was like, you know, probably like violence from men or I don't know, whatever. And it was disordered eating and it was starving themselves. And I'm like, that is so intense. Like that, um, that commitment to punishing like and we all do it in different ways at different points in our lives of course but Mm -hmm. it really Mm -hmm. is when you look at it from that perspective really like insidious on a societal level of like what are we telling women about their capacity to like feel good and feel alive and be seen and be loved and to the point where like the stories that we're telling us get to the point where we're killing ourselves by Mm -hmm. not eating or eating too much or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. And, and I think that it's, it's a, yeah, being in that cycle of just disordered eating keeps us from doing the thing that we're actually meant to do in the world. Right. So it's this barrier that is stopping us from living the rest of our lives, which is why it's such a powerful, um, powerfully terrible and destructive habit to have. Because as you said, like when we aren't able to move beyond that, we stay in, you know, worst case, we die. And best case, we're just living at a kind of a suboptimal level. And, and it reminds me of, you know, um, when women are, you know, hesitant to share their ecstatic orgasmic birth stories to not, you know, with quotes, you know, make other women feel bad or shame other women. And I think also with the commitment to self-hatred and self-punishment and disordered eating is also a commitment to stay in relation to the other disordered eaters in your, in your life, you know? So if you come from like an obese family and all of a sudden you're the one to be like, I want a different life. Like I want Mm. optimal health. Um, What does that mean 
to, to set yourself apart from the tribe. And, and I've had a couple of clients that like I described earlier, like the one I described earlier, who is committed to eating food they don't like because they don't want to appear um, special or like needy um, for wanting like roasted veggies or like pesto um, or like, you know, what would be considered maybe like higher class, um, bougier kind of food options. Um, and yeah, so there's, there's the, and, and, you know, and then if you, if you take a woman who's also a mother, there's the like commitment to not, you know, perhaps to not um, centering her needs, you know, and, and then also from a practical standpoint, when you're buying from a big fam for a big family and six uh, out of the seven members of your family want to eat one thing and you want to eat the other, it's not really cost effective to get, you know, to have all your meals separate and to prepare, prepare your meal entirely separate from the rest. And so it's just easier to kind of just go along and keep doing what you're doing. So yeah, on a practical sense, it, that, I think that's one thing that, that women kind of on the surface, they'll say, oh, this is why, but that's not, that's not actually the reason, because if you're committed to health and feeling good, like you're, you're going to find a way to make it work. And usually what happens in that case is like the entire family shifts to where the mom, to the food that the mom is eating because it's delicious and it's nourishing. Mm -hmm. Like the kids want it after a while because they, they realize how good they feel. You know, if you're going from like a kind of a, uh, low, low uh, nutrient dense diet to a, a super nourishing diet. So yeah, there's the, you know, and I remember also getting comments from family members about like how much self-control I had once I did really, get, you know, resolve my, my binge eating and I would watch them spiral at like family holidays and I could just see myself and how it was just like oh my god I have to have more oh my god I can't stop oh my god it's so good oh my god I feel so sick oh my god I'm gonna have to go to the gym in the morning you know like uh, just the like replaying it before it's even happened um and there was yeah I, I definitely missed out on some bonding with mm. family members when I really dealt with my issues because then I couldn't be in that like kind of playful like oh my god let's just like get a let's just get ice cream or like cookies and just stay up late and like all of a sudden I didn't want to go to Dairy Queen anymore all of a sudden I didn't want to like <laughs> that wasn't part of our relationship anymore oh, um yeah. and that that was isolating at first you know to be like I don't want to eat that or I don't want to keep eating. Um, so yeah, there, there's that fear of kind of, you know, not being a part of the tribe in, in, mm -hmm. in that way, because food is meant to be enjoyed and, and to, to be enjoyed with company. And so I can do that now, but not in the kind of, kind of college, you know, post-college kind of, uh, you know, imagine like little girls that sleepovers like staying up eating like sour patch kids like that those kind of experiences that really were like part of my child like I didn't I didn't take joy in that anymore that it didn't become a reward system for me anymore um which on the surface might look like oh she's a killjoy or she doesn't want to have fun um when in fact it was like no I'm I'm having so much my reward system now is not having diarrhea for three hours 
um and then starving myself for two days like mm -hmm. I'm here with you now because I I want to have fun and you know I remember also canceling so many plans just to avoid you know because I would lose control I would feel totally out of control and so if I stayed home at least I knew I knew the foods that I would binge eat whereas if I left my house just all bets were off didn't know mm -hmm. what was gonna happen and I'd worked so hard all week to be so good you know just all these stories is just stabilitating and that that idea of like that you were kind of painting the picture of Isabella of like stepping into responsibility like stepping into adulthood in a way that's like this massive leap especially when you're untangling yourself from your family patterns and the societal comments and the overall painting you're a part of and it takes a huge amount of um courage and yeah commitment to yourself and I'm sure support in some way to um decide that you are worth changing your life patterns for and that there is like you said you know what was on the other side for you like being able to picture what your life can be like beyond this you know just sort of like apathetic detached dissociative out of control state that's a huge um you know, a lot of women don't have that sort of like lighthouse point of like, oh, I want to get there. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, women sharing their stories, women like you um, being like, you know, look what's on the other side. And actually it wasn't about the food. Like it's bigger than that. And I, I haven't struggled with this particular form of self-punishment, struggled with other forms, but like that must feel you know, validating to know, oh, it's not about the food. Like, because I couldn't imagine living in a world where you think food's the issue and it's everywhere. Like that would feel yeah. so scary. So it must feel, you know, just this message of like, what even what you were saying, like for some people, it's going to be drinking, the nail biting, the shopping, the cigarettes, like to just know there is like a way forward and you don't have to be like bombarded by your enemy of food all the time mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. yeah and so um the hypnosis like obviously now you practice hypnosis I don't know if that's worth um yeah. but if you want to speak a little bit about your um journey into that and and your self-hypnosis because you have a pretty wild story about having an unmedical unmedicated medical procedure that I'll let you talk about um which is just like incredible to me as the power of the mind where we're like saying all we're using these phrases on this episode where like we're saying like stories you're telling yourself and that's kind of a a language that all of us use because we have a similar um background and the tools and subconscious programming and things like that but these stories really to me solidify like wow my mind is so powerful and um yeah your hypnosis mm -hmm. story really speaks to that so loved love for you to share that one yeah totally and maybe before before I share that I just want to add one more thing to the um like it not being food thing. I mean, I really do think that there is a conspiracy against women 
to keep us at a suboptimal level. And one of the ways that that, that, those strat- that strategy is enacted is through the control of our minds around food mm. and the control of our bodies and how we, we relate to food. So, so I think that that is a, a conspiracy and that's why it's, it comes out in food, I think, um, particularly. Um, so I think having that awareness as well really helped me because I was like, oh, it's not specific to me. It's, right. it's, I mean, it's like targeted at me hundred percent and it's not just me. Right. Like who does it serve to keep me at this suboptimal level? Clearly it's not serving me and yeah, what, what, what happens? What is like the consequence by, by staying in that, in that level? So yeah, I, that, that kind of analysis, that kind of like zooming out. And that stat about obviously, you know, the number one cause of death for women being, being you know, starvation, at least, I think it's at least in the U.S. Is that, yeah. I don't know that that's worldwide. Yeah, I think it's just in the U.S. Um, yeah, that was, that was like, whoa, okay, there's something else going on. And so right. it's now my response. Now that I have that awareness, I have my work to do to fix this in my life. And I think a lot of women coming to me, you know, have a radical feminist analysis of the world and still that component of it, like really not even being about them is like, is paradigm Mm. shifting, you know, that, that they're, I really, yeah, like I said, I think there's a conspiracy to to keep us at a suboptimal level. And so all, I mean, you just think about it's, it's mind control. It's full on mind control to think 90% 90% to make 90% of the thoughts that you have throughout the day being about like what you eat or what you're not going to eat. Oh my gosh. And yeah. You're, you're doing it wow. to yourself. <laughs> wow. No one's have a gun to your head and say like, if you think about anything else, it's like, we're going to detect it. And this is over for you. It's like, you were literally just fucking alone thinking about food all day. It's sick. Wow. And so Such I'm a low like, level, like survival tactic. Like you're in like yeah. survival yes. mode. It reminds me of the of the interview with um, Yunim Park, Yunami Park. I forget her name, but the North the North Korean defector, and that's what she talked about. How in North Korea, like the most powerful tool that Kim Jong Un uses is to keep the population in a constant state of starvation. So they can't think about revolt. They can't think about the fact that they have no rights. It take, took she said it took her thirty minutes to get out of bed every morning just because she was so hungry like she could just she would topple over at any time, you know like that is such a powerful tactic. So I think obviously to a lesser degree, uh, this is not North Korea. Um, we have the issue here of eating too much, which she actually mentioned in the interview. She thinks it's like hysterical that this is like a phenomenon where people eat too much, uh, you know, living her like 30 years of her, nearly 30 years of her life in like starvation. Um, so with, yeah, so I think after, so yeah, the colonoscopy came about in 2018 and it was suggested, recommended that I get one to rule out any kind of more serious gastrointestinal issues. At this point, I was still working through everything and still, uh, I think I had, yeah, I was still binge eating then um, as well, 2017, 2018. Um, but I'd been a doula for about a year or two. And so I was teaching hypnobirthing and I just thought like, I, I'm already convinced that hypnosis is like amazing. So like, why wouldn't I use it on myself? And it was really exciting prospect for me to be able to use, to do self health, to do self hypnosis for this procedure, because I don't have kids and you know, 
I just thought I'm not going to give birth anytime soon. Like, why don't I, why don't I try it for this? Obviously, oh my gosh, birth Isabella, and, that's like what? crazy. What? Like, I, I know I've heard this story, <laughs> but I still like cannot like. Which part? I would be so scared that like it wouldn't work on my, like, I don't know. I would be like, but can I do it to myself? Like, what if it doesn't work? Well, I was already, I was already a believer. So it was just about rearranging the pieces. It was like, what do I need to do to prepare for this kind of thing? And, and I had, so I bought, so one part of it that I should mention is that um, I was in an NLP training a couple months before the colonoscopy and for all the techniques, it was like NLP and hypnosis, uh, like just like a continuing ed training that, that I would do, you know, a few times a year. And, um, and uh, I was always the first to volunteer. And I was like the best volunteer because as the, as you know, one of the teachers was practicing the techniques because I had already been a hypnotist myself and um, I, you know, already believed in the healing powers of hypnosis. And so um, one of, you know, I volunteered one, during the training and she was like, is there anything you want to work on? And I was like, well, I have this colonoscopy coming up. Like, let's do something around, around that. And the, the imagery that she chose, and she was so, she's like a master hypnotist. Like she, she just kind of like made it up just on the spot. The imagery, imagery she chose was um, me as a snake charmer in like an ancient land and like everyone comes to see me do my snake charm like be, be a snake charmer and like the snake you know was supposed to be like the literal look tubing that they stick up your ass like so it was perfect um but like oh the, the, <laughs> it's true and so I came away from that like she in that session she really got to the essence of why I was doing it, which was to be seen, like to be even like admired for what I could do and to be proud of myself mm. in that way. And so being like a performative kind of like snake charmer, I think she kind of, she kind of used that to, to kind of bring it home. So that was a very short session. And so I thought about that for a long time and, I, and that certainly helped me to prepare. And then during the actual procedure, um, I, I actually listened to some of the hypnobirthing tracks because I had heard them so many times. I didn't feel the need to make a new track or make new affirmations. You know, those tracks had already been anchored in my mind to a state of deep relaxation, to a state of deep release, because I would witness women, you know, be in a state of deep relaxation. I, I knew every word to the scripts. And, and so I just had positive, relaxing you know, associations with it. So that's what I ended up listening to for part of the procedure. And then at one point I did take the tracks out. Um, and yeah, I just, I just went in with no fear and released, you know, all the muscles in my body and, and breathed and made sounds. Like I didn't lay there, you know, in complete silence. Like I was grunting and moaning. There were one or two minutes that were really intense where I was kind of grunting and moaning, but um, preparing my body beforehand like that was that was the work um understanding why I was doing it understanding the benefits of doing it and then also replaying in my mind over and over what I was going to feel like after so as far mm -hmm. as I was concerned it had already happened right and that's how I've kind of been living 
you know, this past year or two is seeing the vision that I want and then arriving at that, right? If you can't see it, how can you get it? Like, if you can't mm-hmm. visualize it and imagine it to be true, that it's already kind of like happened, what are you, what are you working towards? It is just, it's, it's a powerful kind of, um, and you can call it like a manifesting tool that, that I use, which kind of started with the hypnosis and, and that, you know, I imagined, I mean, and I mean this really literally, like I imagined going on Instagram typing. I just had an unmedicated monster. I remember, I imagined putting the photos up. I imagined telling people like it had already happened. Mm. It wasn't even a possibility that it wasn't going to happen. So um, going into it, I was just like, it was like arriving at your, you know, um, play. Like just, just like doing the motions because you know how it ends. You do that show every night, you know, for a couple months. And so you, you know how it goes. You're just showing up. So, so yeah, that was, um, and, and that is part of hypnosis. You know, kind of the function of hypnosis is just to create repetition um, to reprogram and to implant positive messaging to kind of, you know, reprogram negative messaging that you know and we're at a disadvantage with the way that we're socialized and we've been conditioned and that you know repetition is not on our side in that sense Mm. right just the inundation of just being inundated constantly over and over and over um so really making a conscious effort to visualize exactly what you want and replaying that over and over is so powerful well i have questions Um, (laughs) (laughs) So since you were just talking um, about that, um, what, like, is the difference between hypnosis and mind control, just the ethics behind it? Or is there something like fundamentally different? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Pretty much. Like, you know, I think, and this is the, this is an issue that all hypnotists will face is what are they, what are they willing to participate in? What are they willing to do? And like, it's a kind of a funny example, but did you, did you ever watch the um, movie Shallow Hal? Mm-hmm. with Jack Black and Gwyneth Paltrow well so he played so Jack Black you know is just like known as this shallow guy who only dates these like skinny supermodels and so he meets Tony Robbins in in an elevator and Tony Robbins like hypnotizes him into seeing like all like the inside of all women so you know Jack Black's character ends up falling in love with this woman who's like really obese and like the opposite of the kind of you know physically speaking the woman that he would typically go for um and so that puts him that's like an ethic that's like a compromising position to put someone in because he's living in a reality where he's with this like supermodel and everyone around him is like we're we're seeing different things so then a friend of his is trying to get him to stop being in love with this like obese woman and so his friend finds Tony Robbins and he's like break the spell so Tony Robbins like breaks the spell which leaves him in a very difficult position um and then ultimately like they obviously they stay together and he's like I love you and you're beautiful inside and out but yeah so like (laughs) that's the that's a kind of a ridiculous example but um yeah I mean ultimately like I I hypnosis the kind of hypnosis that I do, which is like for healing and change, like it is participatory, you know, like someone is finding me, paying me, like they are a willing participant. There's an intake form. Like I know exactly 
what they're there for. It's very, very clear what they're, what they're showing up to have resolved. Um, and so that is the kind of hypnosis that I do, you know, like I haven't been trained to do a stage hypnosis. Um, but there is a kind of hypnosis and mind control where like sudden body movements, like where you can tug someone's, you can, you can, you can touch a body part very fast in a way that doesn't make any sense that it confuses the conscious mind that people will just like go out. It's crazy. It's nuts. So I'm not trained to do that. Like it's a certain like tug of the arm. Um, it can be done in, in other different ways, but basically in all hypnosis, the point is to confuse the conscious mind so that the, the subconscious mind is able to like receive things and messages, right? Without Which all people, of the- For people who are having like intrusive thoughts or, you know, mm -hmm. messaging playing over and over, like that disruption is- necessary and like yes. again yeah your intention as like this conscious hypnotist is to bring people out of those compulsive patterns of thought mm. as opposed to yeah. something like mind control like you were saying which is like the intention behind it is to like hurt these people or confuse them for the sake of like not allowing them to function optimally yeah I mean we're all under mind control we're all in a state of hypnosis in so many ways like I think, you know, and this is part of the rad femme analysis too, which is like, as women, especially we, I don't think we make very many choices at all mm -hmm. until, until we can acknowledge the power dynamics, class dynamics at play, which like, we are all the results of like the state of our lives. Like we are all results of previous power dynamics, class dynamics, history, you know, so until we can kind of see that, I, I don't think there's much promise for true agency or choice. Um, yeah. So yeah, mind control is something that it, it sounds kind of scary and like other, like that, that phrase, like, oh, it's over there, you know, like that's what they do in cults. But like, I mean, look at the past two years. If that's not mind control, you know, I don't know. Starving yourself to death, locking yourself inside right. for two years, like fearing other humans. Right. I'm like crawling out of my skin thinking about like, Keely, like how our college experiences started with a hypnosis session at our college orientation. Yeah. Like that was like, welcome to our college. And it was like the first night of freshman orientation, we had a hypnotist and it was like, he wants to come up and get hypnotized And that, like the symbolism. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously I'm sure oh it God. was like in good fun, like, oh, you know, they had like, you know, a show and then it, yeah, it wasn't but, that deep for them, but thinking back, I'm scared. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Okay. What, uh, did, what did he do? Can I ask? Like, was it a man? Like, what did he end up yeah. doing? Do he was a man and he had like five. Oh, I remember. He had five people up on stage and they did do the like thing. Mm -hmm. And then one of them was like running around singing a song and like doing weird like dances, right? But you could never really tell if like the people were pretending to be in on it or like. That's true. Cause it was like your first day of college and you're like trying to impress people. I don't know. I was like, I wasn't no, impressed. I wasn't impressed. <laughs> no, 
neither was I. I mean, I know. I was like in the back, like, like warding off the mind control. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's scary. It's a scary. And I think that's why so many people reject. I think, I think like Keely, what you just said, like, you don't know if people are pretending because it's the first thing. It's like, I think that's a really normal reaction to seeing people be out of control of their own bodies too. It's like, because the other alternative is like, wow, we are, we are quite uh, malleable and we can be manipulative and that that's really scary. So I think that's also why stage hypnosis gets such a bad reputation or hypnosis has a bad reputation because of stage hypnosis. And then the um, disbelief around how, like real stage hypnosis is, is I think perhaps, well, I think a healthy skepticism, you know, to have around like performance and what's being shown to you as, you know, normal or real, but then also a a resistance to believing that we are perhaps subjects of such experiments at all times. Yeah. I mean, it's how I view astrology too. Like for me, astrology is a therapeutic tool horoscopes wouldn't indicate that that you read in the newspaper in a magazine I was just thinking I was just thinking I was gonna say astrology getting a bad rap because of it's mm-hmm. because of like go star exploitation mm-hmm. <laughs> truly <laughs> truly it's like is this something purely for entertainment or yeah not um okay back to the colonoscopy I just like must know what the doctor's response right was like I just feel like if I even like like I've been in situations where I requested to just like not be given like Tylenol in the ER and they like literally were offended. And so I just can't imagine going for surgery and like them being like, yeah, okay. You can make whatever sounds you want. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So it, so it it isn't technically a, a surgery. It's considered like a medical procedure, but it doesn't happen in a hospital. It happens in like a, a kind of a separate like clinic outpatient. Exactly. Outpatient clinic. And I went with this guy. He was really lame, but I went with him because he agreed to do the procedure without anesthesia. He had done it for a couple other patients. Um, And so the, the, I had, I had called a couple other people who were like, absolutely not. Um, So I chose him specifically because he was on board for that. I mean, I think he was really skeptical till the very last minute and and more so his skepticism, but like just the kink that it made in the bureaucratic process of getting all the paperwork done and insurance. Like I still got a $500 bill for anesthesia. I mean, I I got, I got the bill taken off, but like, you know, this was an out of pocket, this is an out of pocket procedure altogether because I'm not in the age bracket for this to be like standard practice, you know, like people over 50 or whatever. Um, uh, so yeah, the prep, like before I went into the room where they do the procedure, I was in this like little, I guess, little triage space. And this woman was like, oh, she was just was like all fear. Like I remember this nurse being like, oh, because you're not getting the anesthesia, it could take 45 minutes. And I had been told it was going to be a 10 minute procedure. And so I was just like, that doesn't make sense. And like, I could, I could see what she was doing because I'd already been attending hospital births and I knew how like crazy they are when you, you say you want any, anything different than what they're used to giving you. And then she said some other fear-based things. I tried to fear monger me and I just thought like, oh, she doesn't know. <laughs> she doesn't know that I'm ready. I'm just going to be just fine. And 
One thing that I've thought about a lot, which I think is important for anyone who's considering also having unmedicated colonoscopy is that when you are conscious, because I wasn't in a depth state hypnosis where I couldn't speak or move. Like I was deeply relaxed, but I could feel what was going on. And then at the end, I opened my eyes and I could see the camera and I could see like the thing moving through me. It was wild. But for a procedure like that, where you really have quite a, a good, like it is a, it's a, it's a, it's an attainable thing to do it without. I don't think I'm super special in any way for being able to do this. I think a lot of people with the right preparation can have an easeful experience without anesthesia during this procedure. Um, but when you're conscious, you can be a participant in what they're doing to your body versus when you're totally out they are not going in there gently. It's, you know, it's very rough. Like, and, and, I, and I could tell, and I knew this to be true. And I had read about this online because I did a lot of research on like forums and stuff. And I, I appreciated that the guy who did do the gastrointestinal who, who was there for mine was checking in with me and, you know, and going slowly. And that just, I just thought, fuck, thank God I'm awake for this. Like, I can't imagine what this would do to my insides had I not been, you know, guiding and participating. And this is a similar thing, like with menstrual extraction, you know, from what I've learned from Mary Lou Singleton and like reading about menstrual extraction is um, it's so important for the woman to not like be high, like whether that's only marijuana or like, you know, taking a bunch of ibuprofen beforehand so that she can be a participant in what's going on so that there isn't a kind of a puncturing of her cervix or, you know, she can, she can feel, you know, the, the, the kind of emotions and the uterine walls, the kind of the scooping and the scraping is happening, like being able to guide in that way and say, oh, too much, too far, keep going. Like that is so important for our, you know, preserving the integrity of our, the insides of our bodies. Um, yeah, it was just horrifying to think about all the like people who were totally knocked out, just getting rammed. Seriously. Yeah. I mean, the medical procedures, the traumatic invasive medical procedures that happen when people are conscious, like <clears throat> you can only imagine. Um, that's just such an amazing point. Like this idea of um, being in relationship with your body, obviously. And, and when you do have to or choose to outsource and get a procedure done or yeah, have a menstrual extraction or whatever it is, like to be able to still choose that with agency. Um, and it's kind of like, I see it as kind of like a making the most of this warped distorted system that we're in where that's not the choice given. So we have to like put on this armor and like prep ourselves and really go in with this protection but that I love the distinction that you made with like the radical feminist choices like how many choices are we actually making and this being a way to like subvert and like stop the um the like trance that everyone is in of like just be unconscious and and let things happen and obviously yeah people might not choose to get unmedicated colonoscopies, but this is 
you know, planting seeds for me of what do I do unconsciously in my day? Like, Mm -hmm. and that awareness and yeah, just like getting to know yourself more. Like, how did you feel after that experience? Like, did it shape your life? Like I, that would be like my Instagram bio. I would like such a fun fact. Like if I was ever playing two truths and a lie, like (laughs) dating app, that would be like, Oh my God. Yeah. It is a fun party trick to pull out every now and then, but it doesn't, it doesn't. Well, that and the hypnosis. Yeah. And the hypnosis. It's just, I, I felt amazing after I skipped down Park Avenue. I mean, I was literally skipping and I just thought those motherfuckers needed someone to pick them up. Like the whole thing with the colonoscopy is like, you have to schedule someone to come meet you. And Dude, I got a colonoscopy when I was 15 and was like fainting in the elevator before and after. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I was in a wheelchair. So I was like yeah. fainting in a wheelchair. They tell you to like block off the whole day. And then the, the prep, oh my God, the prep, I don't have any advice for the prep is disgusting and terrible. It was horrible. I've not figured out how to, how to um, evolve past the, that. Um, but yeah, the prep was a hundred times worse than the actual procedure. Um, Dipping yeah. down Park Avenue. Literally. I was like, and I was also starving because you know, you're like fasting as well. Yeah. And I was just like, just figuring out what I was going to eat. And I was skipping and I was just elated. I had just like beaming endorphins, you know, like I did it. And I remember the gastroenterologist saying like, wow, you you did great. You know, like just feeling just so proud of myself, you know, and it was a test. It was like, how can I be, how can I be teaching these tools? And, And, you know, like it really felt important that I was using them in my own life to be able to instill them and, and, um, share them with others. So this was just a, you know, with, with the binge eating and helping with binge eating so significantly for that, that, that year. And then the colonoscopy, I was like, this is, this is serious. This is really, this is really good. This is a really good modality. (laughs) Wow. And aside from like the fear mongering that would induce this, I think like what you were saying about being conscious and being able to say like, what, felt right and what didn't during the procedure like imagine all those people who are in and out of there in 10 minutes going under anesthesia like how much they're jacking up that like makes them have to be in a wheelchair after Mm -hmm. they leave like imagine that could all be avoided you could skip out of there yeah we'll have the tools to be able to remain conscious yeah I mean it feels scary and also imagine it feels scary to people because they're wondering why you know if they're knocking people out for this must be really bad, you know? And then like, some people would say like, why do you want the pain? Like, why do you, like the anesthesia is the best part. You go have a little nap. Like being unconscious in a room full of people sticking a, a thick black tube up my ass. Like, I'm sorry, that doesn't sound like a fun little nap. That sounds terrifying. And you can't have anyone in there with you that you know, you're not allowed. So yeah, it is. I understand why people don't think about it because it's it's certainly not normalized, but, and I'm definitely not the only one who's done it without, you know, anesthesia. There are, there are forums online, but yeah, it is not standard protocol. And, you know, most doctors will not suggest you. And, and I should say that like some people who are going in for colonoscopies have like growths in their colon and cancers. And so that, you know, the, the tube 
th th there, there could be other factors involved that, that would make it more difficult. But like either way, whether they're awake or not, the tube has to get up there somehow. And so if there's a barrier, like even more, I would say actually even more reason, like there's the growth inside the colon, even more reason why I would say the person should be awake to be like, let up a little bit or like pause, you know, for a second. So you were like, you were like speaking during it? Yeah. I mean, I mean, towards the end, no, for, for the, for the beginning and the middle, I was just breathing my eyes were closed. I had headphones. I had an eye mask. I was just breathing really deeply. And then when he turned the corners, that's when I felt like the intensity. Mm -hmm. And he said, he had a theory that he thinks like the less belly fat a person has, the more intense it feels. Um, so at one point they were applying pressure to the outs like of my abdomen while it was moving up. And that was, that created a lot of intensity. And so for that part, yeah. I mean, I could feel the tube like just below like my, my ribs, like it, your colon goes all the way up there. Um, like, I don't think I knew what a colonoscopy was. Like, I don't think I knew yeah. what was happening to me at all. Like I was like 15 and yeah, I don't I mean, think I, it was just like, oh, you need to get this. Like, I literally don't think I had any idea what was going to happen or what happened to me after. Like, I had no idea. Yeah. That's so sad and horrible. Oh my God. Yeah. You probably didn't even know what the colon looks like. No. Like I needed to see where it was going and like the directions and like how, I, so that was part of my prep too. It was just like understanding that there were going to be like two turns so yeah, there like for those points of intensity, I was like kind of groaning and moaning, like low moaning. And then someone held my hand. I don't remember who it was, but someone held my hand, which was kind of sweet, actually. They, they were like, have been like, don't touch me. Yeah, no, no. I felt I someone. I it was a young. It was a young nurse, male nurse or something who was actually kind of sweet, and somebody held my hand for like a few seconds, and and then it was over. And then by the like once. The was it 10 minutes over. it was about I think it was about 10 or 15 minutes okay yeah, yeah. 10 or 15 minutes and then like towards the end when the intensity subsided like there was only like one or two minutes of intensity and when that was over I think I took my headphones out my earphones out and I took off my eye mask and I was looking at the screen as he was in there and he was talking to me and just telling me that everything looked good and um, it was all positive results as well, which I think, of course, added to me skipping down Park Avenue is that I didn't really have to wait for anything. I was awake um, and he was saying, you know, everything, everything looks good. So that was obviously great news. Wow. Wow. <laughs> it can be done, people. I feel yeah. like a, a huge theme in my life recently has been people uh, being like, I didn't know I was allowed to do that or like oh, nobody gave me permission to do mm. that and it's everything from like what you're saying in this story to like you know I coach improv and like telling them like oh you can try this thing mm. and they're like oh, I didn't know I was allowed to do that and so sometimes it just takes hearing another person's story to even realize that that's an option for mm -hmm. you um and so I'm just so grateful that you have shared so much of your journey with us today because I think a lot of people even if they're not, you know, signing up to go get a, a medicated colonoscopy tomorrow or to, you know, birth outside of the system or whatever.
whatever it may be, at least they know that that's now an option. Um, and it's expanding yeah. everyone's worldviews and consciousnesses in the, in the meantime. Yeah. <sighs> There's hope and freedom on the other side. Like, especially if you're listening to this and you're like, wow, I've always felt something was off about my relationship with food or it's more extreme. And you're like, I'm at the point where, yeah, you're seeing yourself in Isabel's story or, you know, you want to seek help. Like, um, yeah, Isabel, do you want to just talk a little bit about what that would look like and what, yeah, what your hypnosis offerings look like? Mm -hmm. Totally. So um, I think I mentioned earlier, the only thing I don't offer one-off sessions for is binge eating or eat disordered eating. For that issue, I, you know, recommend around 10 sessions and it's usually the ninth session uh, that we do the hypnosis. So it's love integrative coaching, getting to know your story, getting to know like your relationship to food and the stories you have about food success, getting to the root causes of, of why you're binging in the first place or restricting food. Um, and then the ninth session is a depth hypnosis session that really just kind of ties it up all nice. Like, and we make that decision together. It's usually the ninth. Some women need more, some women need fewer leading up to that. Um, and then for anything like, um, smoking or fear of heights or nail biting, pulling out hair, any, any kind of compulsive tendency, um, the, the more acute, the better, the easier it is to release actually. Um, so anything like that, I offer, you know, just a one-off session, which you can book through my set of my website, whosebodyisit.com. Um, and then for anyone looking for more general kind of coaching, stepping into their power, finding their voice, um, those who want to develop, you know, cultivate resiliency, increase their self-confidence, talk about controversial issues, um, that for that I do one-on-one -on -one coaching um, and those are single sessions um, which are available also on my website at whosebodyisit.com. Thank you. My goodness. This was so great. And what's your podcast called? My podcast is also called Whose Body Is It? Yeah, I'm Whose Body Is It across Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, podcast platforms. That's the name of my website. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. This was a really, really fun conversation. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you.